HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Dave Arnold with Cooking Issues, a show where you call in and talk to us about your cooking issues. Uh, every Tuesday from uh, 12 to 12.45. Uh, today's show is brought to you by The Barter House. The Barter House is a proud supporter of the Heritage Radio Network. The Barter House works with family vineyards and small bottlers from around the world to bring only the finest and most flavorful wines to the market. To learn more about Barter House, uh, Barter House please visit them at www.thebarterhouse.com or call them at 917-463-3076. I've actually never had The Barter House. Uh, we're here with uh, Nastasha Lopez from CookingIssues.com and uh, AJ Ede, uh, one of our... Uh, one of people who was our interns he's now graduated um so you guys ever had this wine before no 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 all right so uh we're just gonna open it on air and, and try it uh while i'm doing that i was like there you go uh we're gonna drink this it's kind of warm it's a white wine here it's a chardonnay uh from new zealand and uh <clears throat> we're gonna it's kind of warm we're gonna drink it cesare chef cesare casella style which means with ice so i'm gonna pour this out here and uh while we're trying this wine to tell you how uh, delicious it is um, I'm going to tell you the call-in number to call in and ask us any kind of question you want. 718-497-2128. And so if you have any cooking issues, uh, please call, and we'll try to uh, fix them or at least talk about them. Now, uh, just to give you a little background, what uh, we do is uh, we're at the French Culinary Institute, which is a cooking school in uh, downtown New York, and I run the technology department, which means uh, any kind of new technique or ingredient uh, we deal typically with with chefs but basically anything kind of new or off the wall or kind of weird or any sort of strange problems uh, we deal with those and we we solve them for uh, various chefs we work with a lot of great chefs around the city uh, so you know if you have any questions about 
sous vide cooking or low temperature cooking, which is a, you know kind of a new style of cooking that's making a lot of waves in restaurants right now, or any kind of new new age thickener, new ingredient, or if you want to rant because you hate these things and want to engage me in an argument on the air, we appreciate that. I love rants. I love uh, I, I especially love ignorant people who don't know what they're talking about calling and saying things about how I use a bunch of chemicals. So if you want to do that, I encourage you to call up and uh, and we'll have this discussion on air uh, and with a, with a lot less profanity than you would if you came to my lab and had this conversation. Uh, but anyway, so let's uh, let's first things first. Let's try out this uh, this uh, delicious uh, this delicious wine. Uh, we're, we're drinking uh, Kerner Estate uh, 2008 uh, Chardonnay uh, from New Zealand. Hold on. Mm. What do you think, guys? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It feels old school, like a working lunch, having wine at lunch. People don't do that anymore. <laughs> yes. You know, when you visit Europe, they still have wine at lunch, and then we, like Americans, drink wine like we do at dinner when we're at the lunch, and then we're we're blasted for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> Unless actually, what happens is in Europe, nothing gets done after lunch, which is, I think, actually the more accurate thing. I think nothing in Europe happens after lunch, but uh, but it's kind of pleasant, right? We're yeah, sitting here in, in Brooklyn in the studio, and uh, <clears throat> anyways, so. While we're waiting for someone to actually pick up the phone and call, um, and, oh, and if you call and it gets really, uh, it gets problematic, like you know, there's yelling and stuff. Nastasha is the hammer, just as she is on on our website www.cookingissues.com, where when things get out of hand, Nastasha, who brings her her uh, her fantastic mix of Russian and and Spanish, brings the hammer down on people. Uh, she loves doing that, so please call and get out of hand. We really appreciate it. Nastasha hasn't been able to uh, to crush someone recently, so <laughs> she, she's she's looking forward to it. Um, so anyway, so what do, what do you think? What do you, what do you guys uh, want want to talk about uh, before we before we get any callers here? You want to maybe you should talk about your road app, your new road app. Yeah, I saw the post go up last night. Oh yeah, okay. So here's the deal for for those of you who who don't know what a road app is, which is, I'm guessing ninety nine point nine nine percent of you, what it is is it's a piece of distillation equipment. Um, which allows us, us to do distillations to make booze basically illegally because you can't distill here in in the U.S. Um, you know without a distiller's license, it's a huge pain in the butt. But it allows us to do distillations at a very low temperature. And what's what's great about that is is the flavors are the purest, cleanest flavors that you could possibly. Imagine, I mean, am I right? You, you guys drink it, drink it all the time. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not something that it, we we can get flavors. I mean, commercial beverages are delicious, but it's just we get different kinds of flavors in the road of app, and they're, they're kind of hard to commercialize because a lot of times they don't last very long, or they're difficult to produce, or, or they they would be expensive. Anyway, we've been using a, th- this equipment, uh, of course, like anything else, is, ex- is super expensive. It's many, many thousands of dollars. And, uh, you know, I'd used uh, um, kind of a beat-up old version that was older than most of my students. In fact, uh, we got off eBay for, you know, I got off eBay, I should say, for, for almost nothing and, and kind of crowded it together and got it to work really well. Well, the corporation that makes them, Buki, the first name in rotary evaporation. Buki, no, Buki came to visit us, and um, they, they make the kind of the butt-kicking ones, and they, because uh, we were going to go on this show, the Jimmy Fallon show, and, and I told them I didn't want to, I didn't want to have one of their crappy ones from the, you know, early 80s being the one that everyone saw, and so they brought a, uh, a really nice new rotary evaporator, and they, they let us keep it, which is fantastic, and so the guy who's sitting next to me, AJ, who spent many, many hours flying our old, you know, kind of beat-up rotovap is quite jealous, because he's no longer working with us at the school and now it's so much easier to do all of our work right that's true yeah yeah <laughs> what are yeah. the advantages of a vote of app being well all right well they 
the disadvantages are it's illegal, right? So the you know the, the reason why you don't see it uh, uh, in a lot of restaurants here is because the chefs are are confined to using it making uh, non-alcoholic drinks. If they make an alcoholic drink and try and serve it in their restaurant or their bar, they're endangering their liquor license. So consequently, they don't do it. And the, the stuff that's done with water just isn't as exciting enough, especially if you've ever done liquor. It's just not exciting enough to warrant you know, an $18,000 or you know, depends on could – you could get one for five grand. But to, all that money, space, and training just to do to water-based things. So that's why you don't see it a lot here in the States, although uh, there are a couple restaurants in Chicago that use them. Um, but – it allows you to separate flavors in a way that you know you've never done before. So we do, you know, uh, as you guys both know, because I forced you to do it many times. We'll, we'll do a chocolate liquor that has, uh, you know, just cocoa, you know, the flavor of chocolate with none of the bitterness because the bitterness doesn't distill; just the Roman flavor does. So you have this like chocolate chocolate uh, booze with no no sugar in it that's you know delicious. And or we'll do you know very spicy peppers, habanero peppers that that have no spice in them. They're just you know the fl- floral, amazing floral aroma. Uh, you know. This kind of stuff, or fr- fresh herbs, are kind of my favorite because they're just impossible to re- redo any other way. So you know, something like uh, although uh, Nastasha doesn't like it, you know, cilantro. You know, for the by the way, Nastasha, who's here, she I assume she's going to chime in at some point with some of her likes and dislikes, which are the most preposterous dislikes. In the she, she it turns out. This lady who's in the food business now works with me oh, who, who likes stop. who likes everything. I, I basically like everything in the world with the exception of natto, which is, you know, disgusting. A Japanese fermented soybean product, natto, which is yeah, I, I don't think even in Japan they like it. I think they just pretend that they like it because it's supposed to be good food. But Nastasha hates every damn thing. You're like, "Oh, I like I like delicious things." She's like, "No, I, I don't like that. I hate that." <laughs> Whatever it is, if it's delicious, I hate it. So, speaking of, uh, oh, Nastasha pounded that wine. Jeez, I look. I poured everyone a full glass. Right, we're talking for like ten I minutes. I got a half pour. You did not get a half pour. Come on now. She crushed the wine. She yeah. She she obliterated that wine. Crushed. Just you know, mutilated. Anyway, so it's good though. Yeah. Well, apparently you think it's good. You drank the whole damn glass. Uh, here, here, uh, AJ, pour some, pour some, pour some more. Yeah. Anyway, um, so the uh, so while I'm waiting for someone to call in, uh, I will I will now talk about because you know nothing better to do. I'll talk about some of my my pet peeves. So uh, related to cooking, by my pet peeves. So like one thing I uh, I hate, and uh, if you know I've been on this network a couple of times on other shows, and I always get to say how much I hate the word molecular gastronomy. Well, here's my opportunity to say it right now, and, and how, however long and however angry I want to say, it, do not use the term molecular gastronomy. You know, if any of you out there have, have heard the term before, molecular gastronomy, you do the best to erase this term from from your memory. It's it's awful term. I'll give you some reasons why. Uh, one, it's meaningless. It has no meaning. Uh, it, what does it mean, molecular gastronomy? What the hell? For, first of all, gastronomy is the worst word. It sounds good in French, you know, gastronomy, but it sounds like ga- gas and protronomy, gastronomy. Sounds like gastropod. Sounds like you have gas. Sounds like you're going to get gas if you eat it. Gas. Molecular sounds disgusting. Doesn't sound delicious. So I don't, you know, I don't really see the point in tagging something you're going to eat with a term that sounds inherently, inherently disgusting. And remember, this term is pioneered by by this guy in France named Hervé Tisse. Hervé Tisse, who, uh, as I said, you know, I was on the, the you know a show here last week. I said, you know, I won't say anything negative about him ex- except for he's a, a a charlatan and and what you know and a farce. And so like the the. the 
<clears throat> the thing is, is that he thinks molecular gastronomy sounds good because he doesn't really speak English that well, right? He he thinks in English the word food sounds gross, right? <laughs> right? No, seriously, he's like, food sounds disgusting, food, maybe for a Frenchie, but, you know, I like food. Do you like food? Yes. Food delicious. Yeah, anyway, so uh, so it's it's a term that has no meaning. It sounds disgusting. Uh, it's basically a marketing term for this guy in France, Hervé Tis. None of the chefs who are being described as doing molecular gastronomy want to be described as doing molecular gastronomy. And it puts you in a pigeonhole that I think is is wrong. First of all, either all of us are manipulating molecules, in which case a guy cooking over a campfire is doing molecular gastronomy, or none of us are manipulating uh, you know, molecules. I don't know anyone with a like a scanning, tunneling microscope who's sitting there like adjusting individual molecules in the pie that they're making. I know at least one. <laughs> So, but you, but you, you know, you get my point. It's kind of it's 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 pointless, and um, it's also I think what most people don't realize is that these new technologies are being used in restaurants all the time. It's just they don't know it because because you know they're not doing the kind of food that is labeled as molecular gastronomy. So, you know, uh, people. People assume that if you're using new technologies for cooking, that you're actually, you know, making crazy food, making things that are wacky, making you know things. And we do do that too, just because you know we, we, I mean, we do. But you know, a lot of the best applications of these things, you would never know that uh, that a technology was used uh, to do it. So we serve you a delicious uh, drink that's you know strawberry flavored and it's crystal clear and it's got you know amazing effervescence and the liquor tastes you know super fresh unlike anything you've ever had before and you're not thinking hey hey this you know these people used you know $30,000 worth of equipment and spent like five hours and did like all these new techniques you're like this is a delicious drink and I think those are the applications that are uh, <clears throat> that are best right I mean you don't necessarily want to know so I, I tend not to do things like spray foams all, all, all into everything which I think everyone's like oh you do foam Foams, yeah, foams, foam. But and, you know, I think that's kind of the, you know, it, being able to make a good foam is a kind of you know it's an important you know skill to have. But it's not uh, you know I very rarely do it. You know, only when it's kind of when it's called for. Uh, and you know, foams are nothing nothing new either, right? I mean, foams uh, take for instance uh, the head on a beer. That's a pretty old foam. I think what people are doing is just trying to take the weirdest thing that they can find and turn it into a foam, and then gastronomy. Yeah, right. Go, Yeah, no, but uh, I think that's right. I think, and, and and that's the other problem is some people who actually kind of like the term. I mean, the the, the danger of this, with, with as with any technique, is that someone will take the techniques and just do something just to do it, and the stuff doesn't taste very good. But then everyone who uses the techniques get pa- gets painted with those with that brush. Right. And I think that you know that's the main problem. So you don't want they need you, the marriage of technique and flavor. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's like saying. Uh, it, 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 you're only supposed to use these techniques to try and make flavors better or to try and achieve some sort of effect that you like. If you're, you know, if you're if you're using it just to use it, then that's that's not a good that's not a good application. It's like if I handed someone a frying pan, you know, they could make really crappy food with that frying pan. You know, if I hand someone a centrifuge, they can make really crappy food with that centrifuge. Centrifuge is something that separates things based on their density. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, it, 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 they're just tools, and so the 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 trick is is to is to be open to using these new tools, but at the same time to use your head and say, why do I want to use these new tools, and only use them when they actually make the food better, not when they're just a silly gimmick. Although, again, occasionally we will fall into the silly gimmick just because you know it's my job, but we try not to. Um, all right, so pretty soon we're going to be going out uh, on our first break. So uh, in advance of that, let's have a cheers to uh, 
The Barter House, uh, a proud supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Don't forget to call in with your questions at 718-497-2128 uh, to ask us anything you want about new cooking techniques, old cooking techniques, uh, anything you want. Uh, you are listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. To call in and ask us a question, call in at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So before we left, we were talking about the fact that new techniques and technologies in the kitchen are used for a uh, variety of reasons, and some of the best applications of them are actually ones where uh, you wouldn't necessarily know anything is going on. I think one of the you know best things, uh, best you know uh, examples of that is is French fries. We did uh, uh, many many tests. How many did we do? A lot, about like, twenty. About like no, no, that was twenty on that one day. Yeah, yeah. we've done like on that second day. We've done like probably sixty sixty and change, which is not a lot for you know for a commercial you know place like McDonald's who does you know thousands of tests. But you know sixty seventy tests making my interns do French fries over and over again is kind of a pain in the butt. But what it's about is it shows a mindset. The problem is French fries are problematic, right? Here's why. You want French fries to be uh, – one, you want the outside to be crispy and crunchy, right? Uh, you also want it to be not – it doesn't, doesn't matter how much oil is actually in it. You just don't want it to taste greasy, right? So you want something that's crunchy, not greasy. You want the potato to actually taste like a potato, potato flavor, and have an actual potato texture that's nice on the inside, not, uh, you know, not overcooked, not undercooked, not hollow. You want also the French fry to stay good when it's cold. I've repeatedly said a monkey can make a French fry that's good when it's hot. Same thing as a donut. A donut is a difficult problem. Any idiot can make a donut that's hot that tastes good because it's delicious when it's hot. The challenge is to make a fried food, donuts or french fries, whatever, that is good when it is cold. It's especially true with donuts because they're supposed to keep. But french fries, our task was I want the texture on the outside and the texture on the inside to be good right out of the fryer and to stay delicious even when that 
that thing is cold. And so, uh, you know, m- many of you out there who make French fries are familiar with the uh, with the double frying technique, which is uh, you know it's attributed to the uh, to the Belgians, right? It's a double double fry technique where you fry once to to form the crust and to cook it, and then you fry it a second time to to make it crispy again. Uh, this is kind of you know that's like kindergarten French fry as far as we're concerned. Like, you know, that's like that's like you know not necessarily the you know the the best way to do it. The best way to do it is to do an initial blanching step where you, you kill the enzymes and cook the potatoes in a blanching step in water, salted water, which also flavors the potato, right? And then typically, if the old ways, we would then dehydrate them a little bit, which is allows for the crust to get uh, more, uh, it gets rid of some of the water, which means that it stays crunchier longer. Then fry it once and then fry it twice again. So it's you know a several-step process. But these make delicious fries. But the problem is with the drying step and with the blanching, a lot of times we would get hollow fries or they wouldn't be consistent. So we, we tried to figure out the absolute best, best, best way to do it. And, uh, you know, d- how long do you blanch it? You know, Heston Blumenthal, the famous chef in England, says you should blanch for a long time until they, till they break apart. So we ran all these tests. And if you go to cookingissues.com, you can see what we ended up with. We ended up soaking the fries in an enzyme, a natural enzyme, not some sort of GMO nonsense, but uh, an enzyme called uh, Pectinex SPL that you can also get from cookingissues.com. And what it does is it breaks down the pectin on the outside of the French fries and allows for the starch on the outside of the fry to swell uh, very quickly and form a really nice crust. Uh, it also means you don't really have to dry the fries after you blanch it. So you, you soak it in this enzyme for a couple of hours, blanch it in boiling salted water to make it taste delicious and get cooked, and three time, uh, two times fry after that. And you, you have arguably the most delicious French fries uh, that uh, I've ever had. Uh, what do you guys think about those fries? Uh, they're delicious. I don't even like fries. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so it looks like we have a caller, right? We have a caller? Yeah. All right. Hello? Hi. How are you? All right. I'm good. Um, I was wondering what the benefits are of uh, chilling a drink over dry ice. Ah, okay. So this is an excellent question. Who am I speaking to? Uh, this is Carolyn. I'm hey. from Massachusetts. Massachusetts. All right. Well, first of all, uh, here are the things about, about dry ice. Dry ice, uh, for those of you not in the know, is solid carbon dioxide, right? It's a lot easier to obtain, a lot easier to store than liquid nitrogen, which is actually our preferred chilling uh, method for, for drinks and for many things. But hard to carry over a bridge. Very hard to carry over a bridge. I've done it. Uh, so the uh, dry ice you can get usually from an ice supply house or sometimes from welding supply shops. And uh, – when you chill a drink with dry ice, right, there's a couple problems. You don't want to serve someone little chips of dry ice because that's bad. Uh, it's cold. It can burn your tongue. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not very good. So one of, one of the pitfalls is that you, you don't want little pieces of dry ice. Now, a friend of mine, uh, Tony Cnigliaro in, at Bar 69 Colbert Grow, was making daiquiris where he tr- put chunks of dry ice in a blender with a daiquiri mix and blended them. And they, I have to say he got them to, to come out quite well, although the technique makes me a little bit nervous. The the other thing about it, though, is if you let it chill long enough, the drink is going to become slightly carbonated. So I wouldn't chill a drink with dry ice that uh, you didn't want to have a little bit of bubbles in it, because it's going to get a little bit of bubbles in it when, when you have dry ice. But here's a really good technique for dry ice. Oh, and one of the prime advantages, obviously, is you make the drink, you get the dilution exactly the way you want it with water for a pre-batch drink at a party, let's say, right? And then now the dilution is perfect. Now your only job is to get it cold. Now you can do that in the freezer by putting it in the freezer. But if you put it in the freezer, then it's hard to have it out and it's going to turn to crap while it's sitting on your counter because your guests are morons and they don't drink fast <laughs> enough, right? <laughs> right? And so it's sitting there on the counter getting warm and you're sitting there and you're, 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 
pinching yourself and you know kicking yourself and all this because you know the drink's getting too damn warm and there's not anything you can do about it, right? I and mean, that's kind of a, a torture, right? Am I right? Right. right. Like the party I went to last week. Yeah. Oh, awful. Yeah. Right. And the drink is sitting there dying, dying on the counter because it's getting warm and there's not a damn thing you can do about it unless you have dry ice. Now, you throw a chunk or two of dry ice in there. Don't go overboard. You don't want to freeze the drink, right? And and then it's just going to sit at the bottom of a pitcher. Don't use something too wide. Like you know when you were kids, you got the sherbet and the dry ice, right? That's a little mm-hmm. bit too wide. Uh, you want to get kind of a narrow pitcher. Just throw like you know a couple of rocks of dry ice in there. It lasts a long time. Dry ice is actually uh, uh, has a lot more cooling capacity than uh, ice does, whereas liquid nitrogen actually doesn't. It's a lot colder, but liquid nitrogen's cooling capacity is somewhat similar to ice. Dry ice can chill for a long time. Throw a couple rocks of that in there. Give it a stir. After about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, that drink is going to be lightly carbonated, and it's going to stay cold the whole damn night. And then if you have a problem, like you're running out of dry ice, just crack off another little piece of dry ice and throw it in. Plus, it's, you know, it's got the good show with the mist. People like the show. And it's easily oh, wow. accessible. Yeah, it's easily accessible. It's a really good technique, especially in summertime. You could have an ice-cold, delicious drink. Even very traditional drinks, right? Like gin and tonics, uh, for anyone who knows me knows that I, I have a lot of gripes with gin and tonics, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. uh, they're usually easy. Either they're undercarbonated or they're they're not boozy enough, and in, and it's supposed to be a summertime drink. They always turn to crap. Always turn yeah. to crap, right? Yeah, so, you have to drink them very quickly. Yeah, so even if you want to go completely traditional, you don't want to do anything. Go buy your bottled tonic water, buy your gin, uh, get some lime, mix it up in a pitcher, right? A pitcher, mm-hmm. gin and tonics. Cool. Put it, go out on your picnic bench or whatever, right? You know, throw a couple rocks of dry ice in there. That thing will stay carbonated and cold, and everyone can get shellacked on delicious summertime <laughs> gin and tonics without having to worry about, you know, that last flat, nasty, warm sip of crap that they, they, they think they like it because the tastes are delicious, but they're just always executed poorly. Does that make sense? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. What's your favorite kind of gin? Oh, now that's a question. It's like asking me to choose which one of my children I love best. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, uh, like, diff- different gins are, are, are good for, for, for different purposes. And, they're, you know, my kind of, uh, you know, uh, I, I like Hendrix for some applications. Um, you know, it's kind of, it kind of you know, it's, it's pricey, I think. Uh, yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I, a lot of times for mixing, my hand instinctively reaches for Tanqueray. And I don't know whether that's because uh, – I don't know. It's because I don't know. Just because it's a nice high proof, it's easy to mix with. I but I know bartenders that are partial to you know any and any and every kind of kind of gin. My dad was an old old school Bombay. He wasn't a sapphire guy. He was a uh, you know white label Bombay guy. And he that's actually where I got my love of tonic water and highly carbonated beverages was from sitting next to my dad. Well, he he mm-hmm. would, yeah he would make a gin and tonic, and I would have a, just a lime and tonic. So you know, start me early. You right. got to start your kids early. Give them tonic water early. Get him started out. Oxley <laughs> is also good. Uh, uh, yeah. What is? Uh, he, AJ's just messing with me. <laughs> I have nothing. I'm, I like Oxley. I like Oxley. Oxley's fine. Yeah. It's 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 different. It's a different. I don't think it's a traditional gin taste, but uh, um, a lot of people I know like Beef Eater. I mean, like, but there's a lot, it, a lot of it's personal preference. I recommend going and tasting a lot of gins. If you if you have friends that don't like gin. Then a mm-hmm. good a good gateway gin is Plymouth because it's light on a lot of uh, a, a lot a lot of botanical flavors, especially the juniper that people find objectionable in gin, and so you can you can kind of start them out with that. So that's why we call it the you know it you know the gateway gin, uh, and that it's it's available. The best kind. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, thank you yeah. so much. No problem. No problem. Thanks for calling. Uh, our first official call. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think we were able to help. <laughs> See, anyone out there who's listening, just know. Wait, but how much is is dry ice? 
Uh, it depends. Uh, I think that here in New York, it's a, it's a little more expensive. You actually had to buy it last time. How, how much was it? It was like I a, didn't buy it. They ordered it. Yeah, it's on the order of a couple dollars a pound, and you have to buy. I think like uh, it was like twenty pounds, 20, twenty pounds yeah. or something like that. So you're looking at like a forty dollar or something investment, but it's a small price to pay for a delicious beverage. It comes wrapped, in, you know, at a party. I wouldn't say to keep it around all the time because you can, you know, you can't store it. In your fridge, it sublim- I mean, if you can, it sublimates, and so you lose it over time. There's no way to store it for long periods of time at your house. But you, you show up with just like a, you know, like a, a disposable styrofoam cooler or a cooler. You put it in; it'll last for for hours and hours and hours. And hours. In fact, it'll last for you know a day or more, depending on how well you store it. And um, you know, it's 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 pretty easy, and I think especially applicable to you know summertime parties. What about the handling of dry ice? Well, okay, so dry ice. Um, first thing you should not do. Uh, is the first thing that many many people do, which is take a chunk of dry ice, put it in water, seal it in a soda bottle, and throw it and watch <laughs> it explode. This is not considered safe practice. Uh, in fact, uh, the problem is when with CO two, you know, dry ice, it will it will uh, if if sealed, it will do one of two things: it will turn to a gas, and it will slowly uh, increase in pressure up to about eight hundred psi or more, or explode, whichever comes first. Usually, explosion comes first. So uh, it's not a good idea to seal large quantities. Although, uh, n- uh, never mind. It's not a good. I- it's not a good idea to to do that. Uh, another thing is, it's very easy to get uh, burns, uh, cold burns from handling it for too long. Uh, so you know, while it's fun to sit there and play hot potato with dry ice. Uh, you know, I would uh, I would use gloves when I handle it. It's uh, a lot safer that way than liquid nitrogen is in terms of, uh, you know, liquid nitrogen, there's always a danger that it's going to get underneath the glove and really damage you, whereas dry ice is not, not such of a problem. I'd also, if you're going to chip it, I would wear glasses, safety glasses, because you don't want little pieces of dry ice. It's very hard, and uh, you don't want little pieces flying off and hitting you in the eye. At least yeah, I don't want that. Yeah. It's awkward. Yeah, yeah it is awkward. <laughs> I'm blind and frozen. Yeah, uh, yeah it's not, not such a good idea. And you know, uh, it would be a bad idea to move into a living room and chill it with dry ice because your house will fill with CO2. Um, okay. So uh, we're coming up on our second commercial break. If you want to call in with problems, dry ice related or not, technical or not, for instance, let's say you want to talk about fish sauce. I love talking about fish sauce. Uh, our number here at Cooking Issues uh, Heritage Radio is 718 718- Four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. And you are listening to the Heritage Radio Network Cooking Issues. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. Feel so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel alright. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, brother?
You are listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, this is Dave Arnold, and uh, we are taking calls and fixing people's cooking issues. So, uh, who, who do we have? Who do we have coming up here? We have a call coming in. Hmm. Yeah, we have a call. Yeah. Hello. Dave. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really am excited to uh, have you. Uh, you know, at least live via this method. <laughs> well, hopefully we can we can help out. Who am I speaking with? Uh, John. Hey, John. How you doing? So, what uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, the, the the two best things I bought for uh, my kitchen this year. One was a cook tech. Uh, 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 I bought a cook tech induction unit. Yeah. The induction unit, yeah. just terrific. Right. But the other thing I bought was a uh, mini pack Torre. Oh, which one? The, the MVS thirty one. Okay. Uh, let, me just, let me just tell our users for for a quick second. So we're talking about an induction uh, induction unit, which is basically it uh, it's the most kind of it's the most efficient way really to cook. It uses electricity, uh, but it, instead of having a, a condu- conductively heat like make a lot of heat in your kitchen, it literally heats the pan by by using an oscillating uh, oscillating magnetic electric magnetic field, and uh, it's a fantastic way to cook. It's not as popular here as it is in Europe because our electricity is more expensive than our gas, and because our chefs aren't used to it. The other the other piece of equipment we're talking about is a vacuum packing machine made by Minipack, and this particular one he's discussing, the, M- the MVS-31, is a really great size for uh, the house, uh, and it-, it lets you do a lot of really fun things. It's a really professional piece of equipment. Sorry, go ahead. And one of the great things about it, I mean, aside from trying to do sous vide or something like that, is the fact that, uh, you know, just leftovers. You oh know, yeah, you, you you know it it extends life of foods. You know they don't oxidize. You can keep them uh, for days longer than uh, one would normally keep things in the refrigerator. And you know, like if you go to a, a place like Costco that's selling huge packs of meat, you can repackage meat into uh, uh, usable sizes. Uh, but it, that comes down. I know on the uh, on your uh, your website, you're going to start uh, doing a uh, section on on vacuum sealing and vacuum packing. Yeah, we we haven't uh, done it yet, just because I've been I've been busy. But it is the next right. in in this in the low temp sous vide primer list. The vacuum packing is the next next one. Yeah, right. And I guess my question to you is how much uh, how much are you extra- how much air do you extract when you do it you can go up to like i, I guess like 98% or something like that and i always try and get as much air and and uh uh the 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 highest vacuum amount when i'm i'm sealing things and i i know you've got a it can vary and you can you can seal them from like you know, zero to a hundred. But I, I was just curious, what, what are your recommendations? Okay, so, so here, here, here's the base, the basics of it. And um, you can, you can, if you go on www.cookingissues.com and search for, uh, I don't know what to search for. Actually, Nastasha will look it up. Like uh, on the back thing, we we do a thing on how the texture of meat is affected by by vacuum. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know how much vacuum you apply really depends on on what you're what you're trying to do. So if you're if you're trying to do texture modification, then you want to apply the heaviest vacuum vacuum possible because you want to get all the air out of your product before you do it. If you're mm-hmm. if you're vacuuming to to pres- like put something in the fridge or freezer, then you want a, a heavy heavy vacuum because you want to get all the oxygen out because that's going to be one of the prime reasons that things go bad, especially on leftovers, right? W- warmed over right. flavor and meat. You know, y- you can really prevent it by putting a good hard uh, vacuum on. Of course, your product has to be really really cold before you vacuum it; otherwise, you're not going to be able to put a good a good seal on it. Now, if you're going to cook, 
the problem is is that uh, on red meat, it's not as much of a, of a big deal, but on fish and on poultry, if you put a very hard vacuum on, on, on a product, uh, I find it tends to change the, the texture of the meat when it's cooked. Right, when, right, and, right. and so the, the, the effect is, uh, for those of you that never vacuumed before, is that uh, if you have a very high level of vacuum when you're, when you're doing a piece of fish, let's say, your initial bite will be extremely juicy, but all the water will kind of like rush out. And then as you start chewing, I think it gets more of a fibery taste and it turns almost, uh, how would you guys describe it? Like almost like, uh, it, you, you know, if you, you, you've done it, you know what I'm talking about. It, it, the texture isn't good on the, f- on the sixth and seventh chew, let's say. Right. right? It's, it's like putting a brick on it in just a normal, uh, normal manner of cooking. It pushes all of the water out and so it just becomes a, a grainy interior. Yeah, I mean I'm not I, I don't really understand the the I don't I haven't yet to my satisfaction figured out the actual mechanism of, of what's happening. I just know from a practitioner standpoint mm-hmm. that uh, that this occurs. So what what we recommend is that if you're going to bag fish uh, you want to bag it uh, at a low level of vacuum, just enough to get the bag basically, you know, a good seal around the around the food. And if you if if you're going to bag poultry, the same. I actually prefer to to do poultry without vacuum in in, in ziplocs, but poultry in a vacuum. If you're going to do it, I would recommend doing a, a low vacuum and just for yourself if you have the time. Sometime I would take uh, like three identical pieces and seal one at at like 98, one at 99, and then one at full vac and cook them identically and then just t- taste the difference. Like next time you're going to cook a lot of something and you have the time, mm-hmm. to, time to do it, I would definitely do it. But the vacuum machine that you have is a fantastic machine and you know, I kind of wish I had that for my house because it's got a very good chamber size to, uh, you know, to, to machine size ratio. It's really a nice, nice machine. I mean, and it does so many things so well, and the fact that you can, uh, I mean, I've done blueberries uh, last season that uh, uh, at low, uh, you know, a low vac, but it it preserves them, you know, without the ice and without all the uh, other issues that, uh, uh, you know, come up when you try to uh, freeze anything. Oh, yeah, and, you know, another, like, easy application is you could portion out, like, let's say, if you're like me, you have two kids, you make a whole boatload of pasta for dinner, and then you have a bunch left over, and you want to be able to serve them for lunch or something like that. If you bag down the leftovers after they're done, it makes it a, a lot easier to reheat that stuff without either right. drying it out or ruining it. I mean, it, it really is, you know, it seems extravagant for the home, but it really, you know, it really has its uses. You know, I really like I almost it think it's going to be the, the next big thing. I hope so. Uh, you know, that, that it just had, if, if somebody could teach how good vacuuming is, it, you know, and, and I understand Food Saver sort of guided the way for, you know, the, the whole consumer public to begin thinking about this stuff. But yeah. it's really an amazing uh, uh, kitchen tool. Oh, yeah. No, it's a, no, no question that uh, it, we, I, I hope that they become more and more prevalent and maybe the price is coming down. I know Minipac's working on it. I'm not a big fan of the Food Saver. I like the professional ones a lot better. But Right, right. But I hope to get that next section of the primer out soon. Maybe if I have some time over the 4th of July break, I'll, I'll work on it. Yeah. And Stasha's laughing because she knows that I won't. <laughs> and, and, then, and then just, uh, I also ended up buying a uh, sous vide supreme, and now I see that uh, uh, they're coming not them, but uh, uh, the uh, polyscience people are coming out with a, a new circulator. That's true. Have you, have you seen their new circulator? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Is it? Yeah. It's I, I like I, I like the sous vide supreme because it's easy and you can just sort of stick it away. But have I, you ever I, used I, a circulator like a regular? No, I have not. You will love. The, let me tell you something. It's it it's just boatloads 
boatloads better. It's just, you know, when you move from a non-stirred bath to a stirred bath, plus the, it's so much easier to put away. This thing's the size of like, uh, it's like, you know, uh, in between a stick blender and a regular blender. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not, uh, I have nothing against the sous vide supreme. I've never cooked with it, but I mean, I use circulators it every works, day. It, it, it works very well, and and uh, I've just been, uh, I've been doing a lot of like uh, uh, lamb chops. Yeah, and you just hit them right on when when you do it at like one forty for like an hour and you know some minutes, and then then uh, sear them off. It just becomes so perfect. Uh, it's, you, get your hands on it. Just test it. Play with a circulator. I guarantee. I've never. Here's two things I've never heard someone say. I've never heard someone say, "Hey, I regretted buying that VitaPrep blender," and I've never heard mm-hmm. someone say, "I've regretted buying that circulator." I've just never heard yeah. it. Maybe someone yeah. somewhere has said that, but I've never heard it. The uh, yeah. sous vide supreme. It doesn't actually have a stirred bath, right? It's not stirred. No, it's an unstirred no. bath. It's not that. It's not that it does a bad job. It's just to me, it's big. It's bigger than it needs to be in your kitchen, and it doesn't. It doesn't have circulation, so if you're doing a longer cooked item, you're going to be probably be okay. But if you're doing shorter term items, or if your stuff's coming in and out of the, the bath a lot, uh, I th- you know I think you I always think you're better off with cir- circulation. So it'd be like yeah, a one I, bag. One yeah. bag at a time. I mean, the, the circulator is going to be a, a more money a little bit. I, I mean, I think the sous vide supreme is about five hundred now, and the circulator is going to come in just under eight. But you know, to me, it's. Uh, I mean, it's easy for me to say because you know I you know I've had <laughs> the equipment for a long time. But to, for me, it's another three hundred dollars well well spent. But right, uh, and yeah. but, but there's nothing wrong with sous vide no. supreme. And, no, 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 no. And, and it holds product in there very well. And yeah, I've no. not had any real issues with it. I'm not saying anything it's, negative about the sous vide supreme. Well, no, no yeah, I, yeah. nor am I. I, yeah. I love it, but I you know I may just get a second one just just for the hell of it because you know there are times that you want to do vegetables along with the meat That's and right. at diff- different temperatures well, so you know i don't know if you have anyone in your house who is going to need some convincing that you need this but you can tell them i said that the circulator is a good purchase <laughs> now, now can, can you sell me on the uh uh on uh your what what was the one that you just got uh, uh what the rotovap well, if you, have, if you have twenty grand to spend, yeah, call Buki and get one right away. But like, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen. Thanks for calling. I got someone else thank to come you. in. We're going to run out of time. Thanks a lot. Very good. Thank you. Did we lose our? We lose our next caller. Or are we still I got? I don't him? know. No. Oh, there's no one. Oh, there's no. Oh, we had someone. Now I made. Now I, I cut. I cut this. This poor guy off, John, off because I thought you said we had another guy coming in. So, Dave, if you're going to actually have to cryovac some fish what is the general rule of thumb for the percentage of vacuum fish uh, you know look you want the minimum vacuum that, that you can that you can get uh on fish and you want to bag fish with uh with oil or some other liquid so that it doesn't crush the portions down i think a lot of people when they first get a vacuum machine they put a hard vac on fish and then they you know they, they the portion looks insane it looks like a pillow because they've crushed the bag around it and they're much better off, you know, doing a light vac. Uh, you know, I love the vacuum machine, but get the circulator first, and then and then you know play around. I think we have yep. another. Oh, caller, we have another call? He came yeah. back. The person, yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's John. No, no, oh. no. Oh, the person came yeah. back. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm Janelle. Hey, Janelle. Hey, I have a question about brisket. Brisket. Uh, okay. Every time I try to cook it, it comes out terrible. Ah. Uh, is there a trick to to having it come out? You know, like you get it in a restaurant, you know, kind of melting in your mouth. How do you cook it? Um, well, I've tried grilling it, and that hasn't worked because I haven't been able to maintain a low temperature on my grill. That's very difficult. So, yeah. 
It, yeah, so so I just the oven, you know, uh, about two fifty for uh, depending on how many pounds it is, you know, a, a long time. But um, I don't know if I should sear it first or if there's like a, a trick to it that I'm missing. All right, now, okay, so I'm dealing with a, a, a fundamental deficit in that it's been so long since I've had to cook without a circulator that <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's difficult. But um, yeah, so uh, I would guess that. Uh, I wonder whether they, they, the guys in Texas put an initial sear on it or not. Probably not. I don't know. Hmm. Probably not. Isn't it all about the Maillard? Well, it you know, a brisket's all about... Okay, so a brisket is a tough cut of meat that has a lot of connective tissue, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the basic technique is, is you're going to overcook the hell out of the brisket meat, but then over time you're going to break down the collagen. And the collagen that you break down is going to turn into gelatin, and that's going to re-moisten the meat. So, you know, one of the problems you might have had is that you might not have cooked it long enough for it to get re-moist again, but you treat it basically like uh, like a a braise. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, Cooks Illustrated, I believe, did a a brisket recipe for the house recently, but I haven't haven't, uh, looked at it. But in general, you're right. Low and slow is is the way to go, but you have to Mm -hmm. give it enough time for the collagen to kind of convert. The commercial guys do it in very, you know, in a very low heat in a, in a pit, and the smoke gives it that characteristic smoke ring, and then also mm-hmm. treats it at a fairly low temperature, so that it's basically doing almost like like a confit thing, but without the fat. It's it's, go, it's cooking at those kind of temperatures, at those low temperatures, mm-hmm. and uh, you could, I mean, if you braise it, it's not going to taste like brisket. It's going to taste like a braise. It'll be delicious, but it won't be it won't be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel I feel awful. You know what I'm gonna do? You know what I'm gonna do? Here's what I'm gonna do. Go to okay. Listen, in a week's time, give me a week. I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna research this thing. Go to www.cookingissues.com, okay. and someone will have posted a thread in the forum section. Go to the forums, and someone will have posted a section on it, and we'll we'll figure this problem out for you so that it doesn't happen to you again. Okay? I've oh, seen really wonderful. great. Really yeah. great techniques with marination, like a 24-hour marination before the actual cooking. That'll keep it really tender. Well, we're, we're going to start a discussion on, on the forums of cooking issues, and we're going to get this tacked down because we have some Texans who uh, go to the blog, and I'm sure they will, they will tell me that anything I say is preposterous and stupid. And having had the brisket they make down there, they do know how to make good brisket. Anyway. That's anyway. great. All right. Thanks Thank for, you very much. Thanks for calling. All right. Bye-bye. All right. So we, we have someone else on the line here? Yeah. Or no? All right. Who, who do we got? What do we got? Hello? 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 Hi. Hi. How you doing? Hi. Uh, I have some questions. Is this... Is it... Who is this? Uh, th- this is Weepop. Weepop! 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 Soupy Pot! <laughs> like, okay, people who are listening, this call is coming in live from Bangkok, Thailand. War this, torn. This is, this is, this is, this is Weepop Soupy Pot, one, one of the great all-time people, uh, a friend of Cooking Issues, a uh, friend of ours. And so, Weepop, what is your question all the way from Asia? What is your question? All right. So, um, I eat a lot of beef, right? <laughs> and uh, so, Subi have been picking up in Thailand. And a lot of chefs are cooking tender, Subi tenderloin. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think I think um, previous caller has kind of uh, answered the question already. And, and you've sort of half answered the question. Uh, so... Why why does tenderloin become really fibrous and really mushy? Okay, tenderloin is a huge problem, as you know. Um, I can't believe Wee Pop was calling. I'm so happy. Wee Pop, I'm so happy. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the uh, 
<laughs> tenderloin is is, a, is an interesting case. Tenderloin uh, wants to be cooked at extremely low temperatures because it doesn't have a lot of connective tissue. The more connective tissue that a piece right. of meat has, kind of the higher the temperature, the longer you need to cook it. When you cook something at a low temperature for a long time, a lot of the initial effects of whether or not you're going to overcook something happen right away. And this is the hardest thing when you're learning to cook low temperature or sous vide to get wrap your head around is that you're no longer cooking in terms of uh, just, oh, I'm going to turn the temperature up to cook more. It's really temperature and time, and that stuff doesn't overcook just because you cook it longer. But you do get textural changes. So what happens in meat that is essentially devoid of connective tissue is that uh, it – gets not an overcooked because it doesn't taste overcooked but as you chew it it tastes kind of fibery as you said and so uh with with tenderloin you want to cook it at a, at a low temperature at the low end of the scale when i say that uh, i'm sorry for all of you in america land i think in celsius because i work at the french culinary institute you want to cook it at like 54 4 celsius right around there you don't want to go too much higher and you want to put a sear on it and you only want to cook it a tenderloin for like 45 minutes. Now, the problem here is is that is that this isn't food code because you're not uh, you're not right. keeping it long it's enough. Now, safe. but it is kind of safe as long as you sear it, you kill all the bacteria on the outside. It actually is kind of safe because the inside of the muscle is sterile, but it's just not code. Right. You know what I mean? But I don't know what the codes are in Thailand. Sure. We pop oh, is we, made. We have no code. Oh, nice. <laughs> even though, even, even, so it how, makes how, it perfect. Yeah, how you doing over there in Thailand? How's, how's everything going? It, oh, um, well, th- things are going great. Uh, we have new equipments in, and um, you know, we're, we're playing with food on this end. Well, get, you know, ship us you out know, there. Ship f- us figuring out, there. out a lot of stuff. I, 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 need to, I need to, you know I love, you know I love all the Thai ingredients. How come you don't get me shipped out there? We got to go out to Thailand. Cooking Issues has to, Stasi, right? Yes. Cooking Issues has to go on the road to Thailand. Yes. We Papa's right. made me well, a happy um, man. The, <laughs> the new uh, David Thompson restaurant is going to open up here in about a month's time. For those of you that don't and, uh, know, he has the best cookbook on on Thai food in the English language, in my opinion. Didn't you buy something, Weepop, recently? Oh yes, and and I bought a uh, a secret royal Thai recipe that's uh, supposedly not in print anymore. Which um, David Thompson is actually going to use part of that book to um, in, to base his new menus on. So you're going to email us the recipe or what? It, I think I think it's, uh, it's in Thai. I would have to translate it. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it's recipes from like 1908. Oh, nice! It's extremely old. All righty. Well, we pop. Thank you so much for calling. I can't wait till uh, we can see you back in the states. We got to get you back. Uh, got to get you back to the states, back stateside. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, we pop. Bye, we pop. So, uh, so what are we doing now? We, t- we haven't taken a call. We have to go another, to break. We have another caller. No, you have another minute. We have another minute. Yeah. All right. So this uh, this then was the uh, inaugural version of. Uh, Cooking Issues, the show on Heritage Radio Network. Today, Cooking Issues was brought to you by the Barter House. Uh, and the Barter House, uh, you know, works with the we, – we've polished off an entire bottle of one of their, <laughs> one of their family vineyard's uh, wines here, uh, the uh, Kerner Estate Chardonnay. And we appreciate that they are, uh, they are the sponsor of the show. Uh, thank you for listening and come back next Tuesday. Vicious, vicious vodka Oh, you dirty rat Got me on this corner And I don't know